0: In this episode of Halloween Night 1994, we're revisiting a 1990s Halloween classic film, Hocus Pocus. For many, including myself, watching this movie during the Halloween season is a yearly tradition. We're going to talk a little bit about how Hocus Pocus came to be and the team behind it all, and then dive into nothing but 90s, which is my list of things in the movie that remind me of the best decade, the 90s. But not necessarily exclusively 90s things. It will make sense, I promise. If you stick around to the end of the episode, we'll review some fun 1990s product placements too. And don't worry if it's been a while since you've last watched. We'll have a very brief plot summary to get you up to speed. So okay, Grab a bowl of popcorn and your favorite fuzzy blanket. It's time for a spooky sleepover, and tonight we're watching Hocus Pocus. When black cats howl and monsters roar, it's Halloween night, 1994. Hocus Pocus. This movie is the M-V-N-H-F, the most valuable nostalgic Halloween film of my childhood, so it had to be the first movie episode on Halloween night 1994, the podcast. Hocus Pocus is, if you know nothing about it, a children's movie, with all the elements of a children's Halloween movie you would want. A creepy legend, whimsical spookiness, beautiful sets and costumes, some period drama vibes, funny hijinks, a talking cat, harmless parents that you can sort of feel that young teen angst about, but they're not so horrible that they're like actually bad people, and above all, Halloween lore. Not to mention the many quotable lines in the film— The glorious morning makes me sick. Hocus Pocus is a movie I may have watched on VHS on Halloween night, 1994, as this Disney movie, yes, it is Disney, was released in 1993. And I won't wax nostalgic for too long about Disney movies during the 90s, but know that this follows the 1992 release of Aladdin and the Mighty Ducks, and precedes the 1994 release of The Lion King. So yes, it sits solidly in the midst of giants. Sadly, when Hocus Pocus was first released, it wasn't an instant classic. Perhaps this was because it was released in theaters in July of 1993, to avoid competing with another solid 90s Halloween classic, The Nightmare Before Christmas, which was released in October of that year. Regardless of its initial reception, though, it has since become a Halloween classic for me and countless others. Before I share a quick summary of the movie, a spoiler warning. I pretty much give away what happens in the end, so if you haven't seen it yet and don't want it to be spoiled, I suggest watching first, and then tuning back in to the rest of the episode. Alright, back to our summary. Hocus Pocus follows new residents of Salem, Massachusetts, 16-year-old Max Dennison and his little sister Danny, plus Max's high school classmate Allison, as they try to escape the clutches of the wicked Sanderson sisters. The Sanderson's are a trio of 17th century witches played by Bette Midler, Sarah Jessica Parker, and Kathy Najimy, who have come back to life in present-day Salem to run amok, and also attempt to become immortal via an evil spell that involves, of course, stealing the life forces and or souls of Salem residents. I, uh, should tell you that the reason the Sanderson's come back to life in 1993 is because Max lights a candle... and is a virgin. My brother's a virgin, he lit the black flame candle, the witches are back from the dead, and they're after us! We need help! Max, Allison, and Danny get a little help from a brave black cat named Binks, and a friendly zombie. Quick aside, Binks is actually a 17th century boy that was turned into a cat for trying to protect his sister from the Sanderson sisters back in 1693. In the end, the Sanderson sisters are defeated, our protagonists and the town of Salem are safe, and Lilcat Binks is released from his Lil' Cat spell, going on to live out his days in the afterlife as human ghost Thackeray Binks with his human ghost sister, Emily. The story of Hocus Pocus's conception is, itself, a moment of pure Halloween nostalgia. It began as a bedtime story inspired by a neighborhood black cat that the film's producer, David Kirshner, would tell to his kids. In this bedtime tale, the black cat was once a human boy, cursed to feline form by a coven of witches for protecting his sister. Sounds familiar, yeah? It's the plight of our main cat-slash-boy, Thackeray Binks. I just want to keep saying Thackeray Binks, because for so long growing up, I thought his name was Zachary Binks. Anyways, according to an interview, Kirshner said that the story quote, terrified and delighted his daughter, which, I have to say, is everything a kid could want from a Halloween story. After a nudge from his wife, Kirshner brought the idea, an initial story to writer Mick Garris, and together they transformed it into a screenplay that they then pitched to Disney under the title Halloween House. At the pitch, they filled the table and room with candy corn, transporting their audience into the right mindset to hear the story. The original pitch was much darker, but this is Disney after all. And a fun fact, the film was pitched to Steven Spielberg to direct, but once he found out Disney had bought the film rights, he passed, because uh, Steven Spielberg's company Amblin Entertainment was a rival of Disney. Instead, Kenny Ortega was given the reins as director. Ortega directed the 1992 film Newsies, and later the High School Musical films, It should come as no surprise that Ortega is also famous for choreographing many amazing scenes from movies like Ferris Bueller's Day Off and Pretty in Pink. He brings a musicality to everything, and that is apparent in one of Hocus Pocus's classic scenes, with star Bette Midler singing a rendition of I Put a Spell on You to the townspeople of Salem, Massachusetts. I didn't actually get that she was literally casting a spell on the partygoers until sometime in my 20s when it finally clicked. But I did recognize Max and Danny's mom's Madonna costume during this scene because I had this animatronic dog toy, Toby Terrier, which was not unlike a Teddy Ruxpin that would move and talk along with these special videotapes. Anyways, Toby the Terrier worked at his uncle's television station, and in one video, one of Toby's dog co-workers dressed up in a, well, like, dog version of that Madonna outfit, the headset, the cone bra. And so I must have asked one of my parents or something what the reference was, because there was, like, no Googling to be done back then. And I've made an obscure reference to a non-Halloween 90s topic, so that's our cue to jump into nothing but 90s, but also some things that aren't from the 90s. Okay, so a disclaimer to start. Nothing but 90s is a list of things that remind me of the 1990s, not just things that are classic 90s, or even maybe vaguely related to the 90s. It's subjective, because it's my list, but I promise it all kind of circles back to the 90s, because I know that's what you're here for. We've got four topics to discuss in the Hocus Pocus edition of Nothing But 90s, and it's a countdown, starting with number four, the storybook opening. Do you remember the opening of Hocus Pocus? Maybe it's possibly been cut for time on television, but Hocus Pocus actually opens with a leather-bound storybook resting amongst drippy candles. So, so many Disney animated films I watched growing up in the 90s started in the same manner, with a storybook opening. So this opening scene conjures up some strong nostalgia for me today. And yes, I know most of the animated films I'm referencing weren't actually made in the 90s, but, you know, thats it's nothing but 90s, but also not exclusively 90s. One big difference between most of the Disney animated fairy tales and their storybook openings and Hocus Pocus was that the fairy tales had these elaborately decorated books, jewel-encrusted or gilded. The Hocus Pocus storybook is a bit more modest, more period appropriate, with a simple engraving of a cottage scene and the year 1693. Above the cottage in the sky, there are some celestial zodiac symbols, and if you're quick to catch it, the faces of what appear to be three figures, a little nod to our three Sanderson sisters. There's also a black cat trailing a fence so this book cover is a little window into the world in which we are about to enter. The candles are lit, the music overture is soft with a sort of choral mysticism, and then the book opens with a crack of thunder and a rousing theme as it drops us into flight across water and forest in what looks to be the hours of the early morning. We're in the 17th century, the year 1693 to be exact, where we see a bit of the lives and story of the Sanderson sisters before they were accused of being witches and hanged. We get out of this 17th century tale and back into present day through Max's teacher, who was telling the story of the sisters in her class. I like this storybook opening, and the, uh, outro, if you will, not just because it reminds me of the Disney films I loved, but because it softly and quietly puts you, as the viewer, in the same headspace as Max, thinking the story of the Sanderson sisters is just a bunch of fairy tale hocus pocus. Though we learn later it's, um, definitely not. Speaking of what's real or not, though, we're told it's the year 1693, and we see the Sanderson sisters being sentenced to death. But the real Salem witch trials ended in 1692. Since the film takes place in 1993, having the opening scenes set in 1692 would have meant that the Sanderson sisters were returning 301 years later, which is not quite as fun as exactly 300 years, so I understand the creative liberty taken there. No, Been 300 years, right down to the day, now the witch is back! And there's hell to pay. Coming in at number three, the houses of Hocus Pocus. Specifically, Max and Danny's new house and the Sanderson home. Max and Danny's new home is charming. I can see why the Denisons moved. The house has a dramatically curving roof and a lookout tower on the very top. This is an actual house in Salem, Massachusetts, built in the 1870s. But what makes it so very 90s is Max's room. When I was a kid, I loved seeing how kids in movies and TV had their bedrooms decorated. And this one is a good one. We've got wallpaper with illustrated ships, bedsheets that have fish on them, lots of posters, what appears to be a photo series of the iconic Apollo 8 Earthrise on the wall, a drum set? Max has it pretty good if you ask me, even if he is forced to live in a town where people are obsessed with a holiday that he's not interested in himself. Growing up, I begged my parents to let me paint the walls of my bedroom, rearrange my furniture, pick out new curtains, anything. The best I got was being able to put up posters of the Backstreet Boys and Blink-182. Not at the same time, though. Those were two different phases of my life. One other interesting prop detail related to the house, that I only caught on a recent rewatch, is in a scene with Max and his parents while they're in the kitchen slash living room area. On the wall behind them is a painting of their house, with lookout tower and all. I love this little detail. It reminds me of The Witches, a film from 1990 which we will perhaps also cover one day on this podcast, a film that features a painting with a rather sinister secret. The other house to talk about is The Cottage of the Sanderson Sisters. On first look, it doesn't exactly scream 90s, but it's those little details in the set design that remind me of the 90s. When we first get a good glimpse inside, in the year 1693, we see eerie lighting and a bubbling cauldron, The candles are burning, the skulls, the cobwebs, the jars with labels. It reminds me of a Disneyland ride, a dark ride like Snow White, but with a touch more evil. Now, if you aren't deep into theme park lore, dark rides are indoor amusement rides with passengers on guided vehicles traveling through narrative scenes, often in multiple rooms, and usually with sound, music, animation, and special effects. I usually want to stop the ride and look around at all the amazing details. And if you heard the words Disneyland and Dark Ride and you thought I was going to talk about the Haunted Mansion, well, don't fear. I simply cannot talk about the spooky nostalgia of my childhood without reminiscing about Disneyland's Haunted Mansion. So yes, it will be featured in an upcoming episode. But I digress. Back to our film and our cottage, where the lighting is perfect, creating the ambiance of a children's play of the 90s, in a good way, and it makes me want to buy those light bulbs that can change color through an app on my phone. The cottage and its moat were constructed from the ground up on the Burbank Walt Disney Studios lot. According to interviews, the cottage was built maintaining authenticity to the period by using the same techniques the original Salem settlers would have used at the time. And, in addition to looking at restored houses in Salem for reference, the final design was quote, an amalgam of everybody's vision of a witch's house from fairy tales to Mother Goose. End quote. The original working title of the film, Halloween House, now makes a lot of sense. The cottage itself almost becomes a character in the film. All Hallows Eve has become a night of frolic, where children wear costumes and run amok. Topic number two to discuss in the Hocus Pocus edition of Nothing But Nineties: wardrobe. When you think of the wardrobe of Hocus Pocus, you probably see the amazing costumes of Sanderson sisters Winifred, Sarah, and Mary in your mind's eye. Costume designer Mary E. Vogt, or Vogt, I might be mispronouncing that, I'm sorry, said that she looked to storybooks and their illustrations for inspiration, and I definitely see that. There's color and velvet, this theatricality to them. I read that she shared some sketches with director Kenny Ortega, who then thought it best to show Bette Midler what they had in mind. After Bette Midler saw them, she reportedly said, Well, of course, I'm not going to wear some black dress. Mary E. Vogt then described the other sisters as follows, Quote, Sarah played the little beauty queen. She was more like a sleeping beauty princess. That's what I was going with, more like a witch princess. And then Kathy was more like an alchemist. The one who was always mixing the potions. So she looked like the cook witch. She was busy doing things. Her outfit was meant to look like a witch baker. End quote. If you haven't seen the movie in a while, well, I'll tell you, that's basically the perfect description of their costumes. But the two characters' wardrobes that represent the peak of 1990s Halloween fashion are Danny Dennison and Miss Olin, Max's high school teacher. I think we only see Miss Olin in the very beginning of the film. Mr. Dennison, would you care to share your California laid-back (laughs) tie-dye point of view? (laughs) But her outfit is, to put it quite simply, peak older woman on Halloween in 1994. She's wearing all black, with a black conical witch hat that's decorated with orange and black pipe cleaners. It's perfect. She has this amazing mix of jewelry too, some that is clearly Halloween-inspired, and some that is maybe everyday but could also be Halloween-inspired, like earrings that appear to be witches flying on broomsticks, a pin of a cat playing a fiddle, and then one of those very 1990s polymer clay necklaces of a ghost peeking out of a jack-o'-lantern. When I re-watched the movie, I noticed that all the extras in this scene in the classroom look like they are about 25, but they're supposed to be 16. The actor who played Max, Omri Katz, was 17, and he actually looks like the youngest teenager here. Leonardo DiCaprio was apparently the first choice to play Max, but he unfortunately turned down the role as he had two other films he was up for, including What's Eating Gilbert Grape. Director Kenny Ortega reportedly said about Leo, quote, Meeting him awakened me to the kind of spirit and fun and sincerity that I was looking for in an actor, end quote. Side note here, I probably will never not mention Leo if he somehow pertains to the story I'm telling. Okay, bonus 90s thing here in this scene. Max and his classmate Allison have a little discussion in front of everyone, which is followed by that quintessential 90s from the rest of their classmates, setting up the teen tension and dynamic between these two characters for the rest of the film. I searched and searched for an actual clip of that noise, and I couldn't find it. My apologies. However, if you watched any teen sitcoms from the 90s, you will know what I'm talking about. But back to wardrobe things. The other wardrobe we're going to talk about is that of Danny, played by Thora Birch. She's supposed to be around 7 or 8 in the film, which is coincidentally just about how old I was in 1994. When we first meet her, she's hiding in Max's closet, which has those wooden slat doors that you can, like, peer into and out of. Classic horror image, I think. Anyway, after that scare, she asks her brother Max if he will take her trick-or-treating because there are, quote, weirdos out. Besides, it's a full moon outside! The weirdos are out! And her costume. The hat, the bright red lipstick, the witch's costume that I read was meant to look like it was homemade, with a vibrant red jacket adorned with these sort of whimsical sun appliques over a black dress or a skirt, maybe? And then this red, yellow, and orange fringed black scarf. This looks like an autumn version of an outfit that would have been sold in the type of mystical gift and bookstore I probably visited numerous times in numerous different places as a child in the 90s, where they sold crystals and tarot cards and elaborate astrology themed bookmarks with tassels. Those things are very much in vogue today, but they were kind of counterculture back in the 90s, or at least the quirky ant type (laughs) counterculture. Oh, maybe I'm just the quirky aunt now, huh? Sisters! Gather round. One thing more and all is done. Yes, gather round to hear the number one thing that reminds me of the 90s in Hocus Pocus. The decorations of the 1993 Salem neighborhood that Max and Danny visit while they're trick-or-treating. There's pop-up skeletons, bales of hay, fake tombstones, a stuffed set of clothing with a pumpkin head on it, elaborately carved jack-o'-lanterns, and this amazingly painted witch pumpkin. If anyone knows the name of this style of art, hit me up. It's charming 90s Halloween everywhere. Don't get me wrong, I love the scary and the dark Halloween vibes too. But this is what I think of first, when I think of the Halloween of my childhood. Here's a quote from set designer Rosemary Brandenburg. We vowed we wouldn't use any store-bought Halloween decorations, so we made everything from scratch. From carved pumpkins to scarecrows, witches, ghosts, you name it. It was a blast. There was a layered quality to Hocus Pocus that I continue to strive for in my work. Exactly. The layeredness of it all is wonderful. And the homemade, from-scratch feeling. If there was a manifesto of Halloween night 1994, this ideal would certainly be part of it. No shade towards store-bought decorations, of course. Our last episode was all about the bistel Halloween decorations sold in stores. But I do think the best decorated houses and front yards were somehow personalized, and not just straight out of the box. I understand Hocus Pocus is a bit of a polarizing movie, and I've read a few unpleasant opinions about it, including a Vox article from 2015 titled, Hocus Pocus is a Garbage Movie That Doesn't Deserve Your Nostalgia. The article lists a few points about why the movie is so bad, including an obsession with virginity, the idea that the film tries to be too many things at once, spooky, thrilling, funny, and thus fails at doing any of those things well, and the lack of personality from most of the characters. The article goes on to say that this lack of personality is the film's greatest strength. Here's a quote from that article. The film's utter vacuousness allows us to project our own feelings into this movie's vacant canyons. You remember it for the nostalgia, the way it made you feel about boomboxes and paper notes, rather than how well it did anything, end quote. Now, to that I say, well, duh. <laughs> Honestly though, I've seen this movie a lot, but I continue to find new things to get excited about on every rewatch like some of what you've just heard on this episode. I guess that's entertainment, right? And thanks for listening. We're going to talk 1990s product placement shortly, but first, if you've enjoyed this episode, please rate it and write me a review on Apple Podcasts. Tell me your favorite Halloween candy. I'll read a review on air each episode. And since you've listened this far, it's time for product placement, the Hocus Pocus edition. We have two to discuss. First up, Mother's Cookies. Do you remember these cookies? The packaging has this old-timey storefront awning in pink and purple, and the logo is this sort of 60s mid-century modern style illustrated woman. I'm assuming she is Mother? (laughs) Anyway... We see the cookies and their packaging at Max and Danny's house, about three quarters of the way through the movie. I can't tell exactly what type of cookies these are, but you may remember the mother's circus animal cookies, with their sugary pink and white frosting and the sprinkles. Yum. And product placement number two, the rough and tumble Ford Explorer. Towards the end of the movie, Danny, Max, and Allison trick the Sanderson sisters into thinking the sun is rising, which would cause the sisters to die for real, and they do this by using the headlights of the quintessential 90s vehicle, the Ford Explorer. Props to Ford, I I guess, for getting the Explorer into two classic movies that released in 1993. The other movie I'm talking about is Jurassic Park. They were, I think, the first generation explorers, uh, the boxier ones. Oh wait, did you think of a jeep when I mentioned Jurassic Park? Well, both cars are in Jurassic Park, which I think is just neat. FYI, I have a small obsession with cars and movies, so you may hear about this again on a future episode of Halloween Night 1994.